Welcome to Real Estate Milestones, where we explore fascinating topics in commercial real estate with knowledgeable industry experts. I'm your host, Ben Malik, and I'm a young real estate professional who is passionate about adding value to people's lives through the incredible power of real estate. My goal is to help you discover what the heck is going on in the industry and how you can get involved. This is Real Estate Milestones, where your future in real estate lies just around the corner. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Real Estate Milestones. Today, we have Jake Clopton, who is a serial entrepreneur, author, and economist. He has a focus in real estate and finance across various aspects of commercial lending, insurance products, property ownership, and, and management. And um, he's a regular contributor to both print and broadcast media. So, Jake, thanks for coming on the show today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Sweet. So, Let's start with the first question I always ask on the show. What's your first milestone in real estate? Um, so, the, I mean, the first thing I, I did that was real estate related um, was, I, I guess, a little more ambiguous. So I was trying to start the company that I currently run now, Clapton Capital, and that was during the Great Recession, which was a credit crisis, right? And the way that I built that up was just by cold calling anybody and anybody and everybody that I could find that would be potentially lending money. So banks and private lenders and everything, right? Um, and just eventually finding guys that were lending. And then at the time, you know, like if you had somebody that was even lending, you know, people just kind of come to you. Um, so that was really my first milestone was just doing a ungodly amount of cold calls to uh, capital sources trying to build up, you know, a network of, uh, of liquidity during that time. That's pretty awesome. Um, I guess who, who was the first to, to lend, I guess, what kind of companies was were the first? To oh lend? God. Um, you know, I can't remember who the first person was that I find. Um, but you know, honestly, a lot of times like small banks, like local regional banks, um, you know, during even tough times, like they're so they can be kind of insulated to, to that type of stuff. Um, so they typically have pretty conservative portfolios and, and they'll keep lending. So um, that was one of the areas where we found a lot of value. Right. I mean, you know, if you had a property, the guy that was literally like a commercial loan officer that worked down the street from the property is usually a pretty good place to start. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've heard that um, before, especially given mm-hmm. that they have a unique insight into their market. They know where to be bullish. They can get granular with it it's like well we actually really love this street versus like what's Wells Fargo going to do like we're like oh right. we don't like New Orleans at all like you know <laughs> right 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 yeah so that's pretty cool um okay and so I want to take a step back before we get to your, your first real estate milestone you started in if I if I remember correctly interbank hedging product futures is that correct yeah so um that's how I ended up in Chicago so I moved here to trade futures Chicago is the trading capital of the world uh, at least future trading capital world. I don't know if it is anymore. Um, because everything's electronic now, right? But uh, so I, yeah, I worked at a, a prop firm, um, and all we did was trade three month LIBOR and Fed funds and Treasury futures. Um, and that's kind of where my banking background, I guess, kind of came from. But I have a diff- little bit of a different perspective than most people that are in the industry because you know you don't get a lot of like ex interest rate trader guys, you know, uh, doing capital markets for real estate. Um, but, uh, you know, it's gives me a, a good kind of different perspective, um, into kind of like where interest rates are going and, you know, markets and how like, you know, large banks work and stuff like that. 
Um, and, and, you know, so, it, but also I'm doing that, you know, uh, up until 2009. Um, and then, you know, that whole thing just dried up and went away. Um, like, I think one day, literally the market disappeared. <laughs> um, you know, they, you see like a bit nass usually and they're they just gone. Um, so that's, that was kind of the evidence to start looking towards something else to do and how we ended up, you know, uh, how I ended up anyways, doing what I do today. Awesome. Well, that's, that's pretty cool. And definitely want to get some of your perspective on situation as it is now, given you have a little bit of um, experience seeing it on the pricing side. I know that gets pretty complex there. Um, but sure. before we go to there, I'm kind of curious, just in terms of your business now, um, just describe uh, Clapton Capital, I guess. Describe all your, your, you're a very entrepreneurial guy and you got a lot of different verticals. So I want to you know, let's talk about, I want to get exposed to the full breadth of it before we go down. Sure. Holes. Yeah. The way that um, I started looking at our company um, was more like a full outsourced, like finance department. Right. Um, so, you know, what I did is start piecing together, like different verticals of ways that we could offer value to our clients and all those clients are, you know, owners and operators of commercial real estate. Um, so, you know, with that in mind, uh, I mean, I run all of our capital market stuff. Um, and have since I started doing this, but, um, you know, we, I also started and we're now a nationwide commercial property insurance company as well. So all we do is commercial real estate insurance. Um, and then we also do financial modeling and outsource CFO work and investor reporting. Um, again, I have a couple other guys that run that stuff, but you know, it, it's all stuff that commercial real estate people can use. Right. And, uh, and all of it is like, you know, outsourced services in some way, even the capital market side, right? Because if you go to a big enough firm, you know, like a BlackRock or something, right, that owns a ton of real estate, they're going to have like insurance guys in-house or capital markets guy in-house, financial modelers in-house, right? Um, and and we're really a good fit for like small and middle market companies um, that, you know, want to offload that time constraint of doing all the stuff themselves and focus on, you know, acquiring deals. So. Uh, that was kind of the thought process behind it. And uh, I think people are appreciating it. So it's working, working out pretty well. Awesome. So um, let's start with the finance debt side of, of the business. Um, what kind of loan products are attractive now, given the current situation with the, you know, I guess there's a little less liquidity than last year, interest rates are higher. Um, what products are are working for people that maybe previously had more access to capital, what, what, what's the the new creative solution to, to get deals done that, um, you know, people may have not previously looked at? Yeah. Um, I mean, it just, it depends on what the deal is. Right. Um, but I I think, you know, as an overall macro theme, private lenders have really stepped into the vacuum of where a lot of depository lending was going, um, or has disappeared from. Right. So as you know, banks, pull back further and get more conservative and pull back on leverage, stuff like that. Um, the private capital markets, right? So debt funds or other private lenders, balance sheet, perm lenders, stuff like that, um, have really kind of stepped into that vacuum. And I don't know where you'd find the chart, but I'm sure if you could find it, see a graph of like, you know, deal origination volume from private lending, it's, you know, it's just gone up and up and up the past few years, but I'm guessing this year, it's you'll probably see it explode. Um, so I would say that's, you know, the biggest macro theme. Um, a lot of the stuff today, you know, that I see is, you know, people a little hesitant to lock in long-term interest rates for perm stabilized deals, right? Um, 
but then also a lot of short-term lending, which works well for the private space, a lot of bridge lending and construction. Um, and then the other you know, products that are of really high demand are gap fillers in the equity space. Um, you know, because you're seeing a lot of deals that are, you know, maturing now uh, that now that rates are a lot higher, they're having trouble being uh, refinanced in the per markets, you know, at levels where they were underwritten to like two years ago. Right. Um, so we're seeing a lot of MAS and PREF equities like that uh, in demand. So I think what, what people are kind of anticipating is that, you know, we'll pay down debt a little bit with some, you know, gap filler equity. And then, you know, that'll come due in three to five years. And by that time, you know, uh, underlying rent economics will appreciate to the point where you can just refinance that stuff out um, with normal debt instead of preferred Perfect. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So can you let's get a little more granular on that on that point. Um, what if you have a specific example um, of a recent deal with prefer mez? Um, can you kind of walk us through that and how, how it worked? And I guess what are the drawbacks of mez? But then also, what are the situations in which it's by far the best solution where you don't really have many other options to kind of want to hear kind of the thought process and how you decide on going this route and then how and how a deal would look? Yeah, I think a good example of that today, probably um, one of the biggest spots in the market where this is a real need is a lot of multifamily bridge debt that was originated in like 2019, 2020, or even 21, really, when um, rates were a lot lower and people hadn't seen that lift off in rates yet. Um, and a lot of those deals, right, went off at 85% of cost and they were underwritten at exit rate assumptions at like 4% with not a lot of cap rate expansion in there, right? Um, and so when those deals come in, come due today, um, they're really stuck, right? So, you know, the the big the difference between underwriting something with very thin margins at a 4% exit rate and now having to stomach a six or something higher, right? Um, it's just a math problem and it just equates to lower debt. Um, and so there's really only a couple options. You know, and one, you can give the, pro give the property away, right? Because nobody wants to do. Um, two, you go back to your investors. A lot of these are syndicated deals. Go back to your investors and do a capital call and, you know, dilute the property down and pay off some of the debt with uh, equity. Um, you know, that's an option. Or three, you know, find something that's a higher cap stack, like debt type product, like mm -hmm. Mazda Pref Equity. Uh, and I, I think that's probably one of your better options because that still preserves a lot of like the equity upside. Um, without, right, but fills that gap, right? So it doesn't give away the upside, you know, in the appreciation of the property, but, you know, you're still paying down debt. Um, I mean, the downside is the downside is that it's expensive, right? So meds and prep equity are pretty expensive today. Um, you know, well, they're, they're always kind of expensive in relation to what senior is, but, uh, you know, now that senior debt, like prime is at 8%, you know, and lots of loans we see today are fives and sixes, um, maybe even higher. So, you know, Maz and Pref, we're seeing double digit, you know, rates of return, if not higher, um, you know, maybe mid-teens, something like that for some of this stuff. So, I mean, that that's that's the issue, right? So I think, you know, really what ends up happening is, you know, during these investments that, you know, let's say you have some syndicator and they raised a bunch of LP equity to do some multifamily deal. They probably need to get a, give away all their cash flow um, and then, you know, have their, you know, investors realize their return when they sell the property. Like that, that's That's the downside. Uh, but the upside is keeping, you know, the appreciation versus diluting the equity. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And I guess the way I'm, I know Mez and, and Pref can refer to a wide variety of different structures. It gets a little more flexible than, than traditional perm financing in terms of, you know, 
what can be negotiated and how and how the actual capital stack will look. But um, I mean, part of me thinks that if you're in this crunch of a situation and rent growth is not as rapid as maybe it was previously, that with um, with that with mes debt, you might have to be paying a pref- or with pref, you'd have to be paying a preferred return on interest rate higher than your debt service or higher than your cash flow. I'm wondering, um, do people ever go negative on? Well, a lot of times in the, in year one, it is a negative cash flow scenario, but you know, like prep equity didn't have either have like an accrual feature or like an interest reserve built in to get through that. Okay. That makes sense. Cool. Um, and so guess we are now we're near the end of, um, April in 2023. Um, I guess, what are you expecting the Fed to do? And what do you think they should do in the next however many months you're, you're, you're thinking about this? I know no yeah, one has this law, but <laughs> it's data dependent, right? Um, I think, you know, uh, word on the street is another quarter point hike, and then they'll telegraph that, you know, it's a pause. Um, but it depends, it's data dependent. And I mean, the thing about interest rates, and because of my background, people ask me all the time, like, hey, where do I think rates are going? And I can always tell them with 100% certainty where they're going. They're either going to be higher, lower, or the same. Because there's really no way to predict where they're going to be two years from now. I mean, you can take a look at, you know, the slope of the curve and see what the market's predicting and stuff like that, you know. But the thing about interest rates, right, is that they're global products. And, I mean, things, something could happen on the other side of the world, like, Ukraine and Russia, and that would totally affect them, right? So it's it's really hard to predict like where they're going. I mean, I, I think the best indicator you have today is the slope of the yield curve, right? It's totally inverted, and I mean that right there is telling you with you know with all of the information you can gather today that the best guess is that rates will be lower in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what I mean? But can you say that with absolute certainty? No, because something may happen tomorrow that could totally change everything. Um, I think, you know, when somebody's, you know, really making a decision about what to do today, it's the way that I like to explain it best is it's almost like asking somebody like, hey, what's the best stock portfolio? Okay, the good question, but it totally depends on you and, you know, your investment value and what, and what you want to do, right? Because um, everybody's scenario is a little different. Um, so, I mean, you know, if is locking a long-term rate the best idea today for, you, for some guy, it's hard to tell unless you know what the property is, what their plan for the property and all this stuff. Right. Um, so, you know, I, based on everything that's happening today, yes, rates will be lower in the future, but something may happen two weeks from now that could totally change that. So it's, it's hard to know. Right. So it's, yeah, obviously it's hard to predict where interest, interest rates will go on a very accurate time basis, but um, how would one, make money predicting the fed i guess how does a interest rate futures trader make money given that it's so hard to predict um would you try to just react faster than the market or i guess guess how how would someone i mean i think the best indicator is the um the plot map right that the fed publishes um and they you know they're telegraphing pretty you know um i guess pretty clearly that you know even the fed governors see um the funds rate coming down over the next couple of years and, and you know and that's that's you can see that clearly in the slope of the yield curve that's out there um 
But again, data dependent, right? If inflation blasts off for some reason, um, which, hey, I mean, it, it could, right? You never know. Um, you know, then, you know, they, they may stay higher for longer. Um, so, you know, I would say, like, if somebody's out there trying to predict exactly what's going to happen, that's going to be really tough. But, you know, you could take a look at, you know, the the dot uh, dot plot map or whatever it is from, you know, from the Fed governors. And then, you know, take a look at the yield curve. And I, I think, you know, the the best value, you know, you're getting today is it, as far as if somebody wanted to try to, you know, game the rate curve and, you know, mitigate their risk as best as possible today. And, you know, uh, but also get some flexibility is probably do like a five or seven year fix with like, you know, like little to no prepayment penalty attached to it, or at least a prepay that's flexible somewhere on that four or five year mark. Cause then you can, you know, you're, you're mitigating your interest rate rates to the ups upside while giving yourself flexibility to recapitalize it if rates do come down in the short term. So. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Cause I mean, the whole debate between fixed and floating is that, you know, if you get a fixed rate, yeah, it's great because you lock in your rate and you don't have to worry about, um, I mean, the only way you worry about debt service is if your rent somehow drops precipitously. But um, at the same time, the prepayment penalties take away your flexibility. And as like a finance person or a person who studies finance, you know, options is the name of the game in a lot of scenarios. Like options has a actual financial value, right? And so like sure. your flexibility is something that's is valuable. So I guess, um, I mean, is there a way around this two-part, just a false dichotomy where, I mean, there's obviously an element of prepay that's mitigated with, floating rate but i guess is is there any you know cool solutions that you have for getting around this two-part yeah economy? well there are certain lenders out there that you know offer no prepayment even on five and seven year fixed products so you know there there are ways to find you know the right deals um i mean every lender has its drawback a little bit uh most of those types of deals are full recourse but um, yeah, I mean, there are lenders with a lot more flexibility. Maybe you can, and some of them will let you like, buy down the, the uh, prepayment penalty and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, I know. I, I remember learning about defeasance and it's like you can replace it with a bond that's paying a, um, you place your, your debt with a well, that, Yeah, that would be like CMBS product, which would be, yeah, uh, probably not the most advisable thing to get into a 10-year CMBS deal right now. Right. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. If, if you're thinking about taking advantage of recapitalizing when rates are low anytime soon. Yeah. Cool. Um, so I guess how buying bonds, would you advise someone to buy bonds with rates high like this? I guess, how, how would you think about um, opportunity costs and, and investment situations in a, in a rate environment like this? Oh, uh, I don't know. It depends what the bonds are. Um, I don't know. They, there's too much uncertainty out there right now from or to really say much about that. Right. Um, I, I I don't know. I, I don't. I, there's probably another shoe to drop somewhere in this banking thing. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, somewhere. And the longer that rates stay high, the longer this stuff goes on for the, the, you know, the greater chances that there's something out there. I mean, we haven't even really, I would bet Beth and Beyond file banks today, but we haven't really seen a lot of pain yet. I mean, to be honest. Right. I mean, you just haven't. I mean, there's still record employment. Um, so, uh, you know, I I don't know, man. I mean, I, I think the next shoe to drop is something. And then, you know, credit spreads may widen versus just rates going up, um, which would affect bond prices and all this stuff. But until you get a little clarity around that, I, I I mean, the Fed wants, the Fed usually raises rates until they break something. And I mean, like, 
yeah, the you know, we had some banks go out, but I mean, that was over really fast, right? There hasn't really been a whole big thing yet. Um, the, and, and maybe there won't be, but you know, there, there's some, there's the potential for something is out there, right? And until that kind of happens, or you know, you, you really get a lot more clarity that you're on the other side of this hill, um, I would be hesitant to really, you know, with conviction say to buy anything in the credit world. Cool. Well, yeah, that's that's helpful. Um, and yeah, that's the the next thing I wanted to to talk about was um, in terms of where, is what you, there might be another shoe to drop. What things, what signs or flags are you you looking for in terms of um, you know, helping to make advisable decisions for your clients and about kind of you know, having some sort of idea of where we're going. Is what are you looking for? Um, and then like you know what. What are some of the risks that you've identified just in the broader macro um, environment? I that's the thing you never really know, right? Um, you know, when, when something when something comes out of the woodwork, comes out of the woodwork, right? You don't really anticipate seeing it coming. Um, I mean, a bank failing—that's <laughs> a pretty big one, right? Um, but you know, I mean, it's just—it's kind of like, I mean, two thousand nine, right? Leave it. I mean, they failed, and but then the credit crisis wasn't for a couple of weeks later when it really hit. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, so that's the thing, you know, the, the Fed and the Treasury may just get in front of everything and, you know, they may, you know, fix a band-aids before it really becomes like a big issue. Um, or maybe there's a bigger issue lurking out there that nobody sees yet. That, you know, that's the thing. And, you know, I, I think, you know, some of the stuff that's happened, maybe that's it, but maybe that's the canary in the coal mine. And it's just, it's impossible to really tell. I think, you know, but until the Fed starts lowering rates and you start to see some of the pressure um, you know, taking off the brakes in the economy. I, I just, I don't know. Um, you just proceed with caution, right? Because that, that's the thing. If, if you knew what it was, it would be easy to get around it and see it and fix it. That, that's the thing. I think what everybody's worried about the unknown, um, and what else is kind of lurking out there that they don't know about. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so I, I know you also have a, the other side of your business is the, you have a JV uh, equity and equity side of your business. I'm curious kind of what that looks like. Like who are the clients who you um, place equity for, or is it more of you source equity for clients that are um, looking for equity? And I guess, you know, what do, what do JV equity, um, I guess who's a good client for that side of your business? Yeah. I mean, it's typically somebody who has like a track record of like similar size deals to like the stuff they're doing. Um, and usually, you know, each deal is like a minimum capitalization somewhere around 20 million bucks. And then you can get like a decent JV equity check in there. Um, and the only stuff that we do is joint ventures, nothing that looks like a real estate security or anything like that. Right. Um, and, and our equity sources are typically like family offices and small to middle market uh, kind of funds within investor capital kind of raise around strategy of deploying alongside sponsors. Um, and so everything is like limited partner for the most part. Um, you know, typically a typical equity structure might look like. You know, um, the limited partner comes with 90% of the equity and the general partners come in with 10% of it, right? And then returns are heavily weighted towards a GP, right? Because then that makes sense to the operational partner. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, usually a couple million bucks and up. And, and you know, the, the areas where, you know, some people get tripped up is, you know, not having, um, I would say, like a track record of deals that they've done in the past, but maybe putting together like a decent deal up front. Um, you know, we have to look at it like, you know, basically proving out that the strategy somebody is, for, uh, you know, 
kind of projecting here has, has worked out for them in the past and that their numbers worked out, right? So if like, here's your pitch, show me that you've done this a couple of times in the past before, you know, we bring in some institutional joint venture partner. That, that's really what they're looking for. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I guess what are the level of return and the hold period that are typical? I guess is it, I guess it's probably case by case, but you, for example, you have family office, you say is a contender. Um, you know, what are they looking for on the, on that side? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's probably higher in today's world, right. But it's, you know, maybe like a 20 IRR and a two old multiple minimum and like a three to five year timeline. Um, a lot of this joint venture stuff is like shorter terms. It's like value add or construction stuff where you can recycle capital after three to five years. Um, so if you look at it in like an IRR curve, like right when it starts kink downward, that's when they want to start to recycle capital, right? Because time is, you know, the enemy of IRR, right? Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, once you've created that value and you've, you know, you've gotten to a point where they're, you know, you're, you're kind of maximize your return in a, in a certain time duration, that's, that's when these groups want to like recycle and, and exit. Yeah, gotcha. Um, you mentioned bridge loans maybe before the show, but um, I guess there's been a lot of craziness with bridge loans originated maybe two or one and a half to two years ago. Um, you said that they're, they're still pretty popular. Yes, what what has changed in, in that market? Um, I'm sure LTVs are looking a little different, and rates are obviously looking a little different. But are um, is uh interest rate caps are they starting to come down what are you what are you seeing there um okay so the bridge lending is, is what, what you're referring to is kind of what i described with like what is a great prep factory scenario right now mm -hmm. um there's a lot of that clo debt that was originated at like super high you know ltcs um bridge lending is it still yes right i mean the th big thing that's changed is underwriting the exit assumption on underwritings right and and that's the biggest part that's changed right because they got the ones that got in trouble they were underwritten exit caps at like four and a half caps and exit rates in the fort, right? And that's we're just in a different world now. Um, so that that's the biggest biggest difference. Um, yes, absolutely. Bridge lending is you know becoming more and more uh, of a need. You know that's that private lending world that steps in when like banks pull back. Uh, so that definitely very important. Um, rate caps in today's world are basically, I mean, they're effectively priced at hundred percent of the rate. Right. Um, because, you know, where the Fed is going and you know, it's been basically it's been clearly telegraphed. Um, right. So it, it's hard to get somebody to take the other side of that when they clearly know that the rate hike is coming. Um, so, yeah, rate caps are super expensive. No, I haven't realized. It. I mean, I don't know. I mean, they're coming out a little bit, but, you know, they're they're priced at about 100 percent of what their you know, expected rate movement is. Um, so, I mean, yeah, that, that may I mean, the, the thing is, you know, Cost of all this stuff, it's kind of, you know, determined on like, you know, a little bit of uncertainty. Um, and so it's like the more clarity uh, the Fed gives about, you know, when they're going to stop, um, you know, the the more spreads can come in. Um, but they haven't really done that yet. Like, you know, I mean, I, I think people have a good idea, but they haven't come out and really said like, hey, we're, we're pausing for now. Um, I think when that happens, you, you can see some of this stuff come in um you know some of the costs of some of these rate caps but uh, you know until then they're, they're going to remain pretty expensive yeah i guess the intuition is that okay rates have already come up a significant amount unless they're going to double again right um we're probably near to the top and the bottom and if we're near to the top then the bottom 
there might be an opportunity to to cast a, a bet, right? Saying that maybe they pause after this next rate hike. That means an inch, we would we would not, or I guess we might not think we need an interest rate cap because we don't think interest rates are going up any any further. Like there, there could be opportunities to like kind of make a bet here. And I guess what I'm kind of curious about is um is that just imprudent? Is that why no one's doing it? Um, well, the lenders kind of require rate caps for a lot of these deals. Um, they just wouldn't get into them with that one. Um, but I don't know. Good question. I would just find a lender that would do a deal with <laughs> that would just fix the interest rate. Right. I mean, um, yeah, true. They're, they're out there, right? I mean, a lot of this, you know, the, the guys who need rate caps are guys that don't really lend against their own balance sheet. Um, and you know, in this environment, what I'd be looking for is somebody who's more of a balance sheet lender that doesn't require, you know, purchase of a recap. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess, um, that makes sense. And I guess, yeah, if you want to get more, a little more granular with that, like what fundamentally is the difference between how banks look at deals and how private lenders look at deals? Like what allows private lenders to be more flexible now? I guess, obviously there's less concerns with deposits and, um, oversight and, and whatnot but i kind of just want to get just given that you talk to these people every day i want to get a little deeper into you know what makes what makes them different um sure so i mean it, like banks are regulated by the fdic right i mean that's that's the biggest difference um so yeah i mean they have very strict um guidelines they're supposed to follow um and, and you know after the bank failures that are recent you know there's there's more regulations coming to the pipe they don't even know what they are yet um, and they're, you know, they're subject to, you know, reviews and audits and all this stuff and risk tier ratings and all that. Um, and, and banks typically, you know, underwrite on a global basis for borrowers. Um, private lenders, you know, I mean, to a degree, really can do whatever they want, right? I mean, they're private investment funds and, you know, their their money is not depositor money. It's accredited investor or, or whatever it is, family office money or something, or maybe their own money, right? Um, so, I mean, realistically, yeah, they can do, they can do whatever they want. Um, I mean, that's the biggest difference, right? I mean, one group is heavily scrutinized about lending investor or depositor money um, and what they can do with it. And the other really isn't. So. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I guess from a efficiency, maybe this is getting political, but from your own personal perspective, is there a, do, do you think that the banking regulation and, and kind of the oversight is, is, um, helpful or more of a hindrance to, uh, I guess, liquidity and efficiency in markets? Like, do you think that, I guess, yeah, I just, I just want to hear your thoughts on, on, on that. Well, Silicon Valley Bank failing was a pretty big hindrance on liquidity and efficiency in markets. So, I mean, they probably should have gotten some more oversight. I, it's hard to tell. It, it depends on who it is, right? Um, so, I mean, well, like, for instance, a lot of local regional banks, for their sizes are probably overregulated, um, but they're usually pretty efficient, you know, uh, lenders. So I, I, I think it depends on which bank it is, and it that that's hard to say, right? Because there's there's some banks out there that still do pretty aggressive stuff. So. Yeah, makes sense. Well, um, so you also have an insurance wing of your of your business. Um, can you tell me a little about how that started and kind of? You know, I guess you want to be this full service provider for real estate owners, but um, yeah, how did you start that wing? And then kind of what are the issues that you might be experiencing there? I, I know there's a lot of talk about um, insurance rates going up and I know, especially in New Orleans, it's been pretty prohibitive um, in terms of being access to insurance. So I'm kind of curious how you're looking at that side of the business. 
Yeah. Um, look, anywhere that's coastal, right, that, you know, has like a wind issue, wind hail, anything like that, that's subject to any sort of natural, right, disaster. I mean, the insurance has just gone through the roof. And that that's one of the reasons why we started that side, right? Um, I mean, one to be, you know, to service our commercial real estate borrowers, but um, also, I think my daughter's about to log in here. <laughs> um, also, because, you know, insurance costs are getting more and more difficult. You know what? She's standing right here. So let's put her up. <laughs> Hello. Uh, hi. Uh, you know, so as that market, uh, you know, here, why don't we pause for a second? <laughs> Give me a second back. Uh, yeah, so listen, insurance, insurance costs have gone absolutely through the roof, and uh, that's one of the reasons we started that whole side. So. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess, what are you seeing in terms of solutions on, I guess, how does starting an insurance company when costs go up uh, a benefit to you? And I guess, how, how are you able to, I guess, deal with um, this situation? Yeah, I mean, like at the end of the day, I think the days of just auto-renewing insurance are over, right? Um, because, you know, the incumbent guys, a lot of them are, you know, either just, you know, very hindered or they've just suffered a lot of losses. Because I think that whole insurance risk model um, was just not priced well for, you know, all the disasters we've had and everything moving forward. Right. And so what we have been able to do since we focus 100 percent on just commercial property insurance is really, you know, have a lot of efficiency and focus just on that. Because like a lot of insurance companies out there or agents, excuse me, in general, do a lot of different stuff, right? I mean, they do life insurance and auto insurance and all this stuff. And, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of people think that just because, you know, one agent has access to insurance, right? Um, they think that, you know, that's just what it is. Um, and there's a lot of opacity in in that, um, excuse me, opaqueness in that, in that marketplace and how that whole thing works behind the scenes. But there's absolutely a degree of, you know, focus and, and the fact that that's all we do really gives a lot of insight into the right places to go to and the right markets to go to. Cool. So um, I guess, are you underwriting or are you just um, kind of being a middleman for insurance? We're an agent. Product? We're an insurance agency. Gotcha. And so do you, you know, just go, you know, originate deals from whoever has the best uh, terms at the time? Or do you, you know, shop every property around? I guess, how does it work on uh, putting deals together on the insurance side? Um, yeah, I mean, listen, we, we go to all, like all the markets that we have, uh, but to a degree, you know, I mean, insurance companies are similar to how like the lending side is like certain ones, you know, want, you know, certain property types in certain areas and, and kind of having those relationships and knowing who to go to definitely helps. Gotcha. And so given that you have that insight, um, and you mentioned picking the right markets, which markets are favorable from an insurance perspective um that might help someone who's looking to, to start their real estate business to know which market to, to uh, uh, i'm just saying if you're looking to stay away from high insurance costs uh, I, I wouldn't go anywhere where there's a beach nearby but that way so. yeah that's fair i guess maybe you have some insight into this i thought um just give it i guess it was hurricane ian in florida last year um that obviously there's a lot of property you know insurance claims um, from what I, I, I guess I went down some rabbit holes and I learned about cat bonds and all these other products, reinsurance, backstopping the, you know, the insurance there and that the risk obviously gets spread around a lot, I guess. Um, it, it seemed like it ended up being that Florida took a big hit. Florida taxpayers took a big hit on 
reinsuring that those um those those products um i'm curious about you know just from from your perspective uh what aspects of the industry are are changing and guess like um you know what's facilitating insurance being a product in the future i guess given that there's so much risk like what's even allowing people to to do insurance yeah um so in the insurance spectrum, right, there's something called reinsurance companies and re- reinsurance companies are basically the insurance companies for insurance company, right? Um, and what, what happened was, you know, because just natural disasters, as I'm not here to debate global warming, but I was in a debate that, you know, natural ga- natural disasters are becoming more and more expensive. And the the issue was that like that risk model was mispriced. And over the next few years and even going forward, right, that mispricing is going to be corrected. And realistically, it's just equating to higher insurance costs across the board, right? Because like what you need to do is you need to spread out insurance costs over a large portfolio of guys that are less risky and guys that are more risky, right? And so what that does is just it's just a rising tide and it raises off ships, right? So even somebody's policy, for instance, that you know, maybe isn't really subject to a lot of like wind damage stuff from the hurricane. They're still going to see increased costs, right? Because they have to offset the other guys that are for those mm-hmm. insurance carriers. So that that's really where it's coming from. That makes a lot of sense. So I guess you're doing a good deal on insurance and in, in the beachfront properties. <laughs> uh, I don't know. <laughs> Probably not. I, mean, I, I have some people like, you know, with uh, problems in Florida, they're like, just find me a deal where I don't have to get wind coverage because it's too expensive to even manage property without it. Yeah. Or what that yeah. That's pretty crazy. And then what happens when there's a wind event? But I mean, yeah, the, yeah, they just they I don't know. I've had some guys that are strong enough to handle on their own. And then, you know, I guess other ones are just praying. Yeah. yeah. Makes sense. Well, that's really interesting. I appreciate you walking us through all these different verticals of your business. It's super helpful. Sure. Um you ready for the lightning round? Sure. Let's do it. Yes. Okay. So you have a daughter, so you might be prepared for this one. But what superpower would you want if you could have any superpower? Um, superpower, uh, getting great sleep every night. How about that one? <laughs> cool. I, I've heard not needing any sleep, but that works too. I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I, sleeping feels good, man. So no, just getting great sleep every night. <laughs> Sounds good. That's a good one. So what is your favorite book or what's the one that's helped you the most? Um, the rich dad, poor dad books. I really like uh, those gave me a good perspective. Awesome. Um, so what motivates you to continue every day? Uh, uh well, the, my daughter, <laughs> kids and gender, I have two others too. So, uh, I would say family. Awesome. And what advice would you give to someone who has a follow in your footsteps? Um, the number one thing I think that I did that helped me out the most was, uh, cold calling and then, you know, not giving up when it was really difficult and hadn't worked out yet. Um, I think cold calling is one of the best skills you can have. Um, and then if you're anybody who's ever going to start their own business can and successfully did it anyways, will probably tell you like right when you feel like it's not working the most um, is usually when it's about to turn around. Um, basically because once you've hit the point where you've uh, screwed up as much as you humanly possible, um, you learn from those mistakes and then you learn what works and then it starts to work out for you. So. That's pretty cool. Um, I heard that before and it's, uh, yeah, it's, I just imagine the amount of people who stop right on the precipice of success and it's, you know, you got to look at those, uh, F ups as assets, right? It's like, all right, well, 
And now I know not to do that anymore. So sure. <laughs> awesome. So since I put you on the spot, I'm going to give you a chance for revenge. So what's one question you have for me? Uh, okay, sure, man. Uh, what, what's your plan after school? Yeah. Plan is to uh, find a, a mentor, um, or find a, a company where I can continue to explore my interest in real estate and, and, uh, develop further develop my skills. Um, just, you know, get, get that experience that I feel like, um, I want as I, and need as I, as I grow in, in this industry, but, um, yeah, so it's really, I'm focused on finding the people who I could ask questions to and, and learn from, maybe learn from others' mistakes, um, which will eventually set me up to, um, if not, you know, start my own firm, obviously I'm going to be investing my, my own money. And so, um, yeah, I just want to build up my, my skills and, and, uh, understanding the industry and obviously, um, make some strong connections and, let meet the people who I'm going to do business with going forward. Cool. Sounds like a plan. Good. Yep. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. Um, thanks for coming on the show. Where can people find out more about, about your companies? Uh, our website, Clop and Capital, or hit me up on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm exceptionally easy to find. <laughs> awesome. Well, appreciate you coming on. Uh, any closing remarks for, for the audience? Uh, no, I mean, you know, if, if anybody has any questions or just wants to chat about deals and market, give me a shot. I'm always around. Awesome. We'll encourage anyone to do that. Um, well, Jake and everyone listening, keep making milestones. Before you go, I just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to another awesome episode of Real Estate Milestones. If you've been enjoying the show and you'd like to offer your support, please leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to increase the show's visibility and help the message get out to a greater audience. I really appreciate your time and support, and keep making milestones. The information provided on this podcast is intended to be educational and informational only and is not considered to be formal legal advice. The listener should not take or refrain from taking action based on its content. Any listener in need of legal opinion upon which to rely in decision-making should consider formally engaging an attorney to review relevant facts in detail and examine the pertinent law as it applies to those facts.